welcome to the Huntback Country podcast. This is episode number 268. Our guest is a returning guest and our friend Dave from Alaska. He joined us back in episode number 253, which was titled Altitude, Attitude, Athleticism, and Age. Dave is a retired marine fighter pilot, very experienced mountaineer, and backcountry hunter. We had chatted prior um, with Dave about many topics in that previous episode and left off just before a hunt that he had scheduled. We wanted to reconvene in this podcast to talk about that hunt and his experience from the fall and also take a deeper dive into some of the wisdom that I've picked up from Dave, not only in the previous podcast, but in my discussions with him offline as well. So guys, I hope you enjoy this one. There is a lot to take away in some of the sayings that I'm calling them from Dave. I actually wrote a recap article um, taking some of these sayings from Dave and me kind of applying those to hunting for myself. You can check that out over at the Exo Mountain Gear blog. There'll be a link in the description for you for that. As always, guys, we thank you for tuning in. Don't hesitate to reach out to us directly. You can send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. For now, though, let's dive right into this discussion with Dave, starting to tell the story of his hunt from this past fall. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, um, guys, I didn't I didn't make the goat hunt. Uh, I'm sorry, the sheep hunt. Um, you know, the environmentals just weren't. Uh, in our favor, uh, what we ended up with was 40 knot winds and rain. And, uh, it actually, turned, it, it actually turned into a, um, a rescue. Uh, yeah, we had, a what is it? What was the guy's name? I can't even think the, the guy McKinless McKinley or, or McKinley McKinnis, the guy who, uh, crack hours book, um, same type of scenario guys got caught, um, on the other side of a river, not realizing that, uh, in most places, rivers rise in the spring um, because of the snowmelt. And in Alaska, it's just the opposite. The rivers rise more, I should say, in the fall because when it rains, um, the headwaters are glaciers. And that warm rain hits the glacier and the rivers just rage. And that's essentially what happened here. Um, in my backyard, Bird Creek, uh, two hunters got on, caught on the other side and we had to, uh, went out there with, a, with some, uh, myself and uh, a park ranger and did some, a little bit of mountain rescue. We had set up uh, some lines, harnesses, uh, uh, pack rafts to get these guys back across this river, so. How were you aware of that situation? Like, did they call by sat phone in reach? Like, how did they? Uh... Yeah, what uh, satellite phone? Um, every I know in reach is, is pretty popular, but um, uh, and texting. Yeah, it, I guess whatever you're comfortable with. But uh, you'll find most guys uh, sat phone. Um, in this case, um, guys go right by the house, and I, I, obviously you guys know I'm a. Uh, international pilot. So I'm either working or I'm not working. So like right now I'm not working. And so I'm, I'm home 24 seven. And uh, I, get, I see guys go by the house and you can see who's going up to hunt and who's not um, just by the gear that they've got. And, uh, and it was a time of season. It was, uh, the opener was there and, and uh, 
I just went up and talked to him up at the trail. And I always offer guys, I go, look, I don't care if you're backcountry skiing or whatever. You know, I just say, hey, here's my number. You guys need anything. I'm, I'm there. I'm just half mile away. I got, you know, all the gear, mountaineering gear in case of a rescue, shovels, beacons, uh, four wheelers, whatever you need. I can get a horse if you need a horse. Um, so, yeah, I offer my services and the park guys here know me. Uh, they know a bit of my cr- credentials. And so, yeah, that's what happened. Um, they, they called back to their parents and I, in, in the case, in this case, I met the parents when the guys were going in and, um, the guy gives me a call and says, Hey man, we need, need your hand. And sure enough, we went up there and, and got him back. So, um, kind of, kind of bit into the beginning of my season or my hunt and then the storm hit and it was gone. So anyway, you were home strictly because cause you mentioned they were going out, you know, for opening day, which you could have been, would have been, but you didn't specifically because of the conditions and you knew it wasn't safe and or huntable. <laughs> Mark, you nailed it. Yeah. It, it's, um, uh, yeah, you just got to be patient and you're not going to beat mother nature. And, you know, I like to hunt behind a high pressure system. You know, it, it, it does a lot for you. Okay. Uh, one, it keeps you dry, but um, yeah, in this case, a low pressure came in and like we had talked earlier, this is a maritime climate up here. We have extreme high and low pressure systems as you get further and further away from the equator. And this, this has to do with mountaineering too. A lot of people don't understand this. The Himalaya are very close to the equator. So your altimeter changes, your pressure changes are minimal. You know, it's like when we were kids and you were talking about the explorers in school, you know, they had the doldrums around the equator. There was no wind because there was really no pressure systems moving through. But the further you get away, north and south in latitudes, the more extreme the pressure systems are, which really brings in violent weather. Um, you also, your, the pressure on your body, the true pressure on your body um, changes significantly. So you can climb... And this goes into more mountaineering, but you can climb, you know, say 3000 feet in a day and then add another 500 just due to a pressure change. And, you know, you're, you can get altitude sick, you edemas, pulmonary cerebral and not plan on it. You're managing the vertical and climb, but the weather can come in and increase and decrease just by standing there. Um, so yeah, as you get further North, like when you come to Alaska, your weather is going to be, you know, we joke around, you know, oh, well, wow, hurricane force winds. And we're going like, okay, I get a hundred knot winds all the time, you know, just on a typical frontal passage. Um, so knowing what was going to happen prior to the hunt, knowing what was going to happen with the rain, the water, everything else, <clears throat> we just elected not to go, or I elected not to go. Uh, but these guys did. And that's why I met them up at the trailhead and said, Hey, here's my number. You guys got any problems? Let me know. And sure. Wow. Uh, they did. And so, yeah, again, it's, it's just a different sandbox we're playing in up here and, you know, and you talked a little bit about, you know, gear and everything else, you know, that Helleberg 10 is really well worth the money when you purchase it. Yeah. I've never thought about that change in pressure systems. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously common to think through elevation, as you said, gain and you're, you're changing pressure accordingly based on the elevation, but I've never thought about that system being a factor in that. Oh yeah. Yep. 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 And that's one of the things that I will do on my hunts being as far North as we are is um, I will be at a known position and this is how you can find out if the weather is changing. So 
when you get to a normal elevation or a normal, an elevation that you know from a map study and you know it's 3,200 feet, um, baseline your watch to it if you've got a barometric watch, which is why I use a barometric watch. I'll get there, set the 3,200 feet and look at the barometric altitude, mm-hmm. the altimetry. And when I wake up, I'll make sure it's at 3,200 feet, then look at my barometric altimetry and I'll know if there's the, the pressure's rising or lowering. Um, so I'll have a good heads up as to what's coming along with other, the environmentals, but, um, yeah, it, it's something that I monitor. Um, you know, you have watches that'll do it. A sun two watch will do it for you, but they require, yeah. they're going to get a, a more of a vertical change in pressures before they trigger a storm alert. But have you found the watches to be fairly accurate? Like on a Cinto yeah. or a Garmin yeah, as far as they- reading barometric pressure? Yes. The, well, it's, it's the, it's the rate of change. The accuracy of the pressure is going to be set by it's same thing with flying airplanes, guys, you, you, to set the local barometric pressure. When I come into land at an airport um, and I left, you know, what, eight hours, you know, from somewhere else, you set to the local barometric pressure and on the ground, the weather people, knowing their known altitude that they're standing at in their office, with their two feet they're standing at, they know that they'll set that and then they'll measure the pressure from there. Okay. And that is the same as your watch. If you know the, the, the spot on altitude that you're at, because it's been surveyed, you set the altitude on your watch, you will know the pressure that you'll, you'll just read the pressure off of that. Um, and that's why the, the barometric watches are much more accurate than, say, the GPS altimetry, because GPS measures acceleration, movement. Do you ever notice when you're, when you're navigating with a GPS device, if you stop, the arrow starts to wander? It doesn't continue to point towards your target. And that's because you're not moving. And so when you move, um, it's measuring the XY acceleration as you're moving along the ground and the tighter it gets um, for navigation purposes and the more accurate it gets. Whereas um, if you're measuring vertical, the Z axis, if you're not moving up fast and down fast, the accuracy is not as well. It's like standing still, you know, for the X and Y. Hate to get into the engineering, but that's- No, yeah, it's, that's, yeah, it's fascinating. That's, yeah, you don't, if, if you want a very accurate altimetry watch, and I, I, I hate to say it, but unless you can run up a mountain to get that vertical accuracy, um, GPS just isn't going to give it for you. Barometric, I mean, is everything. That's why we don't use, well, I shouldn't say we don't, but um, it's not a very accurate approach on an airplane. Um, is a GPS approach uh, because of that. We're not descending as fast as we are moving forward. I mean, we're doing what? almost 200 miles an hour on an approach going forward, but we're only dropping 500 feet per minute. You know, it's yeah. The, the tightness of the vertical axis, the Z axis isn't very tight. Hmm. Um, the acceleration isn't very tight. So yeah, yeah stick with the GPS, uh, GPS for X, Y navigation. And then the barometric, uh, Barometric doesn't lie. It's, it's nature. She doesn't lie. <laughs> yeah. But you do have to keep in mind calibration for that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's like anything else. The, the airports do it on a, God, on a, whatever their interval is. 
you know, and I want them that interval to be frequent when I go to land. Cause if it's zero, zero, I want to know exactly, you know, the, 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 the specific barometric pressure, you know, especially if there's a frontal system moving through, cause then other barometric pressures rate changes significantly. And that's one of the reasons why it's segueing back into hunting in a high pressure system. Once you, once a high pressure moves in, it becomes stable. If that makes sense. You know, you just, the parametrics become stable. The sky is clear because you got a higher pressure system and everything can kind of sort of relax. And uh, it's the best for hunting. Um, gotcha. Besides so you, that, yeah. animals are wet and they want to get out and get some sun. <laughs> you want the pressure climbing, not dropping. Well, you don't want any gradient. You want it, you want it existing. <clears throat> okay. As a, as a, it's like plowing snow when you're pushing snow in front of a blade. The snow's, the, 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 the snow is coming off the blades to the side and you're the high pressure the, the truck is the high pressure moving into the snow field. That makes sense. You want to be sitting in the truck and all that dynamic in front of you moving all that movement and all that chaos is the snow in front. You don't want to be in there. You don't want to be in front of it before the blade gets there. And you definitely don't want to be there when the blade is there. You want to be behind it. You want to be in the truck. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting, yeah, that's a good analogy. I like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of rescue, Dave, we chatted on the phone a couple months ago and I literally have notes from when we were chatting on the phone and I have this note that I wanted to hear about, hear more about, and then also discuss on the podcast. Cause we only hit it briefly as we were chatting on the phone. Um, we were talking about that rescue you just mentioned, and then we kind of transitioned. And I think you're telling me some story about, I think when you broke an arm, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then part of what I wanted to hear about that is just number one, kind of a firsthand account of being in the mountains and facing an injury. And then number two, to go along with that, you were talking about like pain management, pain relief, kind of some of the games you were playing with yourself. And I would love to hear about that. Okay. With the number of people we have listening to this, it's unfortunately inevitable that probably someone's going to get injured in the backcountry and find themselves in some sort of situation, whether it's broken leg, broken arm pain for another reason what have you so go into that story and then just kind of talk about your experience with that yeah the um to segue into that i've over the years what i've done is um after each hunt um and actually after each day in the hunt i i sit down and write lessons learned you know what you know what what could i have done better you know um and i write them down and oh a number of years ago i started to realize that you start, I started to categorize them and I came up with sayings, things to just bullet out, to tell people. And there's little stories along with it. And I just, before we got started, I wrote down five of them. Um, and they have to do with safety, uh, training and, and tactics in the mountains. And you can, one of them is, uh, um, well, the one for pain was uh, uh, climb half as fast and think twice as much. Um, because I made a huge mistake on that hunt and broke my arm because I didn't do that. Um, another one, and this goes along with, uh, the mountaineering aspect and, and, and even with the hunter, I tied it into the hunter last year was, um, uh, the, the summit doesn't make the, the mountaineer, you know, the, the trophy on the wall doesn't make the hunter, the mountaineer attempts to summit and the hunter attempts to harvest the animal. Um, that too many people lose that, you know, they all think that I got to have that trophy on the wall and that makes what I do or like the athlete, you know, that gold medal makes the athlete. No, it doesn't. You know, the athlete achieves the gold medal. 
you know, the, the, the mountaineer makes the summit, you know, the, the mountaineer is the operative word. The hunter is the operative word. And just because you don't have trophies on a wall and Steve will attest to it, I don't have any, I don't put them up just uh, choose not to, but um, that doesn't make me the hunter. Um, uh, the other one is see what you're looking at and hear what you're listening to. Um, one I took away from the military um, was uh, work from the target area back because that, that does a lot of things for you as far as what to put on your back, what to carry, what to wear, what kind of gear, um, what, what are going to be my shoot opportunities. You know, it's just a way of gathering your intelligence before you prosecute the, the mission, you know, and that way you can properly, uh, properly plan. And, and probably the most important, um, and, it, and it means uh, many different things at different times of the year, but I, I always tell people, never let your expectations exceed your capabilities. And that where it gets into, you know, walk half as fast and think twice as much. If, if I tell you that, on the hunt, your brain is geared to safety, you know, or on the climb, you know, I just, man, don't let your expectations exceed your capabilities. Cause if you do, you ain't going to come home. Okay. But you tell a guy that 10 months out before the hunt, it's like, Hey, let's increase our capabilities. Our expectation is summiting Everest or summiting Denali or getting that Ram all right, let's start working on these capabilities because I don't want my expectations to exceed, you know, my capabilities and I've got time to work on. them. So um, getting into that, getting into that, um, that injury, um, I always, I always tell guys, it's pretty, you, you know, Steve, it's pretty tough getting into a super cub uh, with uh, two good arms and two good legs. Try it with a busted arm. Um, it's, it's not, it's, it's not fun. Um, and nobody really expects to get injured in the field because we're, we're, we're just focused on what we're out there to do, which is take that animal where I was walking faster than I was thinking. And it was a benign, you know, I just finished a, not technical, but a, you know, fairly difficult ascent on an approach. And I got to the top and I was, took a breath and I started walking and I slipped, you know, my right foot hit my left foot and down I went with, uh, with a, probably a 40 pound pack and I broke my arm. It, it was that fast. And I just, uh, shoot, I just, the approach was about a two, three mile approach to the base of the mountain. And it was a 4,000 foot climb. And I had to go back down, uh, with a broken arm solo. Well, I wasn't solo, but I mean, um, I mean, that was it. I mean, my buddy, Joel, I mean, he had to carry everything down. Um, but I started working my way down. Um, no, no painkillers. Uh, I held my arm out in front of me, uh, with my other arm now going down was fairly precarious. Uh, the descents are always worse than the ascent. And now I couldn't do it with poles. Um, poor Joel was running up and down the mountain, carrying gear back and forth. And, and, um, yeah, it was, I made it back to the tent, called on the sat phone for, uh, the air service to come pick me up. And, um, I knew right away it wasn't going to happen because of the weather, um, we had there at base camp, um, and the time of day. So, um, I spent 18 hours in a tent with a broken arm, no painkillers. 
um, what I did for management, uh, pain management, and to, we talked a little bit about mini summits before, you know, you always think about, you know, I'm going to get to the top, but you have to have little victories along the way um, to keep your morale up. Um, That's essentially what I did uh, with this injury is I got on all fours, actually all threes, (laughs) and I bent my, my left arm just enough so I could put my elbow on the ground and I, and I set the, the altitude of my shoulder essentially with my left arm, like doing a push up with one arm uh, and on my knees and to put the shoulder and arm, upper arm in traction. So I could, that was my only pay, way to relieve pain, but I couldn't hold it. I could only hold it for the best was 45 minutes. And so I did it for 45 minutes and then I'd sit up and I'd hold it horizontal, which is when it was hurting for 15. So I did that 18 times. And all I really focused on, my, my watch was on my left hand. And so that was the good hand. And I was sitting there working the traction. I just sit there and watch the minute hand move. Um, and after about 17 hours, we heard the Super Cub coming in. And uh, yeah, got into a Super Cub. Um, flew, uh, to a 185, got out of the super cub, got into the 185 and flew into the, into the hospital. Um, so yeah, my, uh, my first aid kit has painkillers in it now, (laughs) Um, but it goes into, uh, I was just walking too fast. You know, I wasn't thinking and that, that it's just, and it, it, and, and, since that time i go solo and that is one of the biggest lessons learned to be successful solo hunting is walking half as fast and thinking twice as much and being more attuned to what your environment is um like i use the example of like for a sat phone i'll have my sat phone on my backpack and i'll turn it on when i'm working into a new area working into a into an approach into a into a valley or something, I'll turn the sat phone on and I'll look at the bars on the sat phone. And as I prosecute my way in hunting, if I lose the link, I don't go any further. You know, I just, that's it. And that ram may be a hundred yards away. Now I'll probably go after it. But the point is you've just, you're measuring your risk. You've just lost communications. Um, is it so solo hunting? Is it as, as, as successful? No, absolutely not. It's not. Two people are far better, more lethal, more survivable um, in the field than solo. But those are the things you got to do. You got to think twice as much. I got to look at that sat phone. I got to make sure I've got my one, two, three bars, whatever. Hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, there's just more, you're, you're more in tune with your environments by walking half as fast are climbing half as fast and you just got to be thinking all the time yeah well and that i mean we've said that mostly in the aspect of safety which obviously makes a ton of sense but just even as hunting um walking half as fast and as you even said prior you're not you're not seeing what you're looking at you're not you know you're not actually hearing what you're hearing and when it comes into hunting and instincts a lot of times we're outpacing our instincts or outpacing animals that maybe we're you know walking by opportunities and not really seeing what's going on in the environment. You nailed it. I mean, I, that the great segue, that's exactly, I mean, I realized the first one, see what you're looking at, hear what you're listening to. 
I was in pilot training and you have a scan and this was many, many, many years ago. And, and I worked my scan on the instrument panel and the guy froze me and he said, I got to ask you a question. I said, what's that? He says, what's your altimeter say? And I go, uh, he said, I saw you look at it, but you didn't see it, you know? And he was right. You know, I, I had my scan down, you know, I was doing it and doing it and doing it and I, everything was going good, but I didn't, it didn't register. And so when you do walk or climb half as fast and you do focus on what you're seeing at and, and, you know, Steve will attest to it. I mean, you can, you can drive around here just from the airport to my house. And if you're doing 70, 60 miles an hour on the road, you're not going to see the, the doll sheeps and, you know, the, the, whatever, the wildlife. If you slow down and just start looking, you know, you'll end up seeing it. Yeah. So it, it yeah, the, Staying in tune with your environment, you know, both safety and lethality, survivability and lethality. Um, yeah, just slow down. We, our society, we just, we just, we want everything instant and, and, and right away. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. work that way. Quickly recap those five sayings. I know you, you mentioned, I think it maybe all five of them prior, but uh, just to go back to it, or if guys want to maybe, get ready, pull out a pen or pull up their phone to jot down a note. I'd love to have you quickly recap sure. those five. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, you know, the, the first one is that uh, the all important, especially for solo hunting is, uh, you know, climb half as fast and think twice as much solo hunters. I can't, I cannot emphasize that them, you know, you gotta be a ninja, you know, for the young guys out there, you gotta be, you know, you, and that's the minute the super cub leaves the games begin you're working and doing things half as fast everything and just look look around look see what you're looking at and hear what you're listening to. you know hear that avalanche rumble you know that off in the distance you know um that tells you stuff i mean um yeah um the other one those are the first two the other one is work from the target area back um, that, that, this, this, and, and, and this kind of, um, segues into, uh, gear. Um, if you were to take your target area, like where you expect to harvest that, that animal in the mountains and, and you look at it, you, you set a circle around that and that's going to be like your weapon engagement zone. This is where, this is where I expect to engage my, my animal. And this is the environment. And you, we get on maps, Google earth, you know, satellite imagery, um, gather as much intelligence as you possibly can, but the best intelligence is, is a person get on the blogs, talk to people. They've been there before. Um, and you get all that sense of, and, and Steve will attest to it is just be, a mountain in Alaska. And one mountain is not the same as another mountain range. Okay. So there's one's got alders and, and the other one doesn't, you know, some require, it's got a lot of scree and other ones don't. Um, so as you work backwards from the, your target area, you start to look at your, 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 you know, the terrain, you know, what kind of boots am I going to be using? Well, yeah, you may only have to go 4,000 feet up. Um, and you can do that in a day or two days, but you got, you, you then you work all the way back and you find out that the super cub dropped you off uh, 11 miles away and your approach is through a dry riverbed and you're going well geez i'd like to use plastic boots in the vertical but i got an 11 mile approach 
Well, now your, your strategy in, in, your, in building your kit is the same one as I would use on a high altitude expedition is I don't use my 8,000 meter boots on the approach because the boot is not designed for the approach going in. So I'll carry those. Now, is it, is it good? You know, we get on the subject about good weight and bad weight. Well, that's extra weight, but that's good weight to me. That's weight that I'm going to need for comfort and my lethality and survivability on the, on the end of my hunt when I'm trying to make that approach into getting that ram. Um, and yeah, so when I walk up that 11 miles in that dry riverbed, I'll have my approach shoes on, tennis shoes, whatever. And then when I get to the vertical portion, I'll just leave the tennis shoes and go vertical with my boots. Um, because not one piece of gear, you know, it's like anything else. If it does everything, it probably doesn't do anything very good. Um, so yeah, you just, you build your kit that way. You build your tactics that way. You, for instance, you're shooting. Okay. You, you study the target area where you think you're going to get a ram. Well, how do I prep for my shooting? You know, am I going to be doing expected shot ranges at 500 yards or 250 yards? Okay. So that goes all the way back to your training as far as your marksmanship, you know, get out there and start shooting 500 yards because that's what we're going to be expecting to shoot. Uh, out there. If you're shooting a Marco Polo at 750 yards, you're going to be shooting a Ram in the Chugach at, you know, 75. Um, so that gets, that builds into your training, you know, where'd you draw the tag and, and so on. So yeah. And, and, and then also the, the physical training aspect, you know, Hey, I drew a tag for the Chugach, you know, in Alaska, it took me 10 years to get it. You look at the target area, you look at your train and start training to that. As, as best you can. So now when you show up, you've got the right gear, you're in shape and your, your marksmanship is at, is at where it should be at. Um, so yeah, I get that from working from the target area back. Um, uh, so the, I guess the other one would be um, it, more philosophical is, is the, you know, the summit doesn't make the, the mountaineer or the trophy on the wall doesn't make the hunter. You know, the hunter puts the trophy on the wall, uh, if, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. It's an art, guys. It's not what we hang on our walls. It's, it's long days and hours of, of, of marksmanship and training and studying your animals, studying the terrain, prepping your gear. Um, just that's the hunter. And then getting out there and, and trying to be as, as lethal and survivable as you can which I guess is a good segue into the, the kit, you know, what do you carry? Um, I had an epiphany, oh gosh, probably 2008 in the Talkeetnas. I, like I said, every day I, I write things down, you know, what did I learn that day? You know, some of the mistakes and, and uh, I was sitting there, it was after a, a long arduous uh, walk, a hike, and I threw my shit out and I, excuse me, but I threw my stuff out on the ground and I just started going, why am I carrying this? And I just sat there and I went, okay, I kind of, my thought process was kind of like, I go back into my experiences and it's the same thing as, you know, an airplane, a fighter, you know, you know, the worst thing you can put on an airplane is a pound because it reduces its performance. And the same thing with a mountaineer or a mountain hunter, the worst thing you can put on them is a pound because it reduces your performance. And so in a fighter, the airplane's designed for lethality and survivability. And I go, well, so am I, I'm, I'm the hunter. 
I'm designing my kit, my airplane, my kit, my mountain gear for lethality and survivability. And so I looked at it, I took everything and I, you know, split it in half. And I just started looking at stuff and I threw my sleeping bag in the survivability side. And obviously the bullet was the lethality side and I broke everything down. And if it didn't fall into those two categories, I was going, you know, basically, why am I carrying you? And one like my watch, I'm sitting there going, that's not lethal and that's not survivable. I said, why am I carrying it? And quite frankly, you know, <laughs> why are you carrying it? You know, you don't want this thing. And I'm going, that's just, so I started looking at the things that were remaining and I just says, okay, if it's not going to fall into those two categories, it's got to do two things for me. And so in the case of the watch and the GPS, I go, okay, I'm GPS watch. Um, and, and there's certain things that'll do three things for you, you know, a satellite phone, you know, watch GPS and, you know, to some extent and communications. So I was really surprised on what, um, I was carrying, uh, that I really didn't need to carry, um, which reduced my, my kit significantly, which reduced my weight. Um, but I, I don't chase weight. Um, I do to some extent. But I also tell a lot of people there's good weight and there's bad weight. And um, obviously the good weight and bad weight, the, the, the good weight to me is, is, is weight that uh, keeps my morale up. So if, my, if I can add like two ounces or three ounces or a pound to say padding, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel better when I have that ram on my back that, you know, my, my pack went from 60 to 115, I'll carry it. That, that's good weight to me because I'm going to have to endure that, that, that weight when I leave. I mean, my morale is going to be up, you know. Um, I've, I'm, uh, my, my morale is a big thing for me. And, and one of the things I carry, and it's just me, is an electric toothbrush. I, I, I gotta, I gotta have my electric toothbrush in the morning. Now it's small, but for me, whether I'm on Denali or Aconcagua or, or Everest or wherever, when I get my teeth vibrated in the morning and my gums, I'm, I'm a happy man. Um, so that little bit right there, man, that's, that's my shot of whiskey in the morning. Um, so that's good weight. My morale is good. I feel good. My coffee's ready and I'm, I'm okay. Let's, let's go to work. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was about to ask that question when you're talking about weight was, do you know, what do you pack for? Like, you want to call them creature comforts. I think your toothbrush yeah. is a good example of that. Or do you pack a pillow or, um, you know, certain things it's, it's easy to, some guys want, you know, I think pack too much comfort into the, into the back country of, you know, a glassing chair, certain things like that, that I think is silly, but obviously you really got to battle that the weight on your back versus, as you say, the, the morale or the keeping your morale up um, to keep you out there longer and hunting more effectively. Absolutely, Steve. It's, it's, you nailed it. No, too many creature comforts and all of a sudden you're not appreciating them. My toothbrush is my world to me, you know, literally, you know, I wake up and I know I'm going to have it um, because I'm going to be, and this gets, this is going to get into the training aspect of this too, because I know I'm going to be miserable at times. You know, that mental toughness needs to come into play, but to recharge that mental toughness battery is that creature comfort. Yep. You nailed it. You, you know, it's, you know, some of the stuff is super light, you know, it doesn't make any difference, but you, Steve, you know, and, and, and Mark, you know, is, is that every ounce 
means something, you know, it's like that buck knife with that leather scabbard on your, on your hip. You know, I can get just as much done with 3.2 ounce scalpel, you know, with a couple of extra blades, you know, you're going to be looking at that going, why am I carrying this, you know, five, six days in the mountains going, this is just, you know, yeah, it holds a lot of sentimental value, but that's, <laughs> you know, um, we have a blog up here that says that the funniest things you found in the mountains. And I always tell people, yeah, you're not the first one, you know, in this drainage hunting dull sheep. And, you know, we've seen, just talking to guys, we've seen guys with rabbit's foot or rabbit foot on the ground, uh, Swarovski spotting scopes, um, boots, um, all sorts of things left because somebody at the time was having an epiphany going, why am I carrying this? You know, and just left it, you know, um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, that's again, getting back into my, my one long day uh, back in sheep hunting, I was, I just put my crap on the ground and went, okay, why? Mm. And I use the, I use the airplane analogy to figure out, yeah, this is stupid. Yeah. It's, uh, it's cool to think of the, like, call it your creature comfort, call it your good weight, your, your personal go-tos that you like, that you enjoy, that may not make the most sense from somebody else or from a weight perspective those things is what you said on using those to basically re-energize your mental toughness or to give you that outlet that peace that enjoyment in the midst of hard times that's a really good way to look at it because going back to what you said steve if you bring too much of that stuff you you don't have mental toughness like what you're saying dave is have like one or two things that when the conditions are bad when times are tough like it's a it's a little boost for you but if you packed every creature comfort and had everything you're not you're not going to face truly like those hard times so that's i think an interesting way to look at the balance of that it's like yes go minimal yes go with essentials yes go with what you need for safety and when things get hard, have maybe like one or two things that kind of helps you endure, especially over a longer hunt. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and they, it holds it, 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 we're not talking about, Hey, having a good tent, you know, that doesn't leak on you. No, I'm, I'm talking about something that you go, okay, this is, this is really going to, you know, change my perspective. Um, and like I said, I do it every morning. You know, I carry that electric toothbrush. People laugh at me. But, you know, hey, you guess what? You know, um, I'm, I'm feeling really good when I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you, um, in my vast sheep hunting knowledge experience from one hunt, uh, <laughs> I, I did come to realize. You're an um, expert now. Yeah. The, uh, you know, do, like a solo sheep hunter is a badass. Because, um, you know, with, with Tyler and I, it's like, and we had the guide. We had three guys to get out of sheep or, if, you know, if the two of us had killed two sheep and three guys. Um, but a solo, um, you know, it made me realize, you know, a, you want to be lightweight going in there, but it's like, you really got to think about coming back out if you're successful. Cause you're bare minimum 130 pounds. You know, it sounds, uh, if I remember right, the Dwayne, our guide, I think he said the Alaska fishing game was a mature Ram. You should be getting, it's like 78 or 82 pounds of meat off of that. Then you got a Cape, then you got a head and then you got your gear. Um, so the logistics of a solo sheep hunter getting out after they've been successful seems pretty daunting. 
Um, how do you approach that? Are you shuttling meat? Do you go heavy and go slow? Yeah. First of all, you, you're the hunter. Then you become the butcher. Then you become the taxidermist. And, you know, the, those second two reduce weight. You know, if I know how to cape an animal and, 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 you know, turn lips and, and get rid of the, the bone, the skull and everything else, i.e. a taxidermist, um, you're reducing weight. Um, you, you, you have time to do that because you got rid of your watch because it's, it's, you know, whatever. But yeah, you're just, you're, you're, you are everything. And then you become the meat processor. You got to keep it cold. You got to be coming down the mountain, figuring out, you know, how to air it out. Okay. When to submerge it, you know, in your bags and, and then, so, okay, I got to submerge it in bags. Well, I need plastic. So like you just said, Steve, when you're coming down, am I going to carry 130 pounds going down a, a 15 degree slope of rock and scree? Nah, probably not. What I'm going to do is have, I pack two large garbage bags and I'll have all my, I pack up all my gear. I'll have them all in one garbage bag and I slide it in the top and I go down and I shuttle, I drop it off. I go back up, grab the meat, put it in the bag, go leapfrog it, pass the other one, go down another. And I, I set my mini summits. How far am I going to go? You know, if it's, if I'm going down through alders, well, I can't go that far because I know what's following me. I know what's around me. Predators. I got wolverines, wolves, and bears. They're all, they're all around me. And, and, and so I'm not going to drop my meat off and then walk up and not be able to see it at any time. So guess what? I'm going to have to carry my, my firearm too. Um, and that's all predicated on the terrain. You know, how far do you walk with it? You know, can I see, is it flat? Is it steep? Yeah. It's a long, people don't think about the tail end of the hunt after the, the work begins after that report of the round and, and a lethal kill. Now it's, it's a lot of work and there's a lot of thinking um, I just had, and it's funny, uh, you mentioned that I just had, <clears throat> uh, two guys back behind the house that get the uh, permit, a rifle permit. And again, I was talking to them before they, they left. I met them up at the trailhead and did the same thing and talking and, and, uh, they came back and they gave me their debrief, uh, over some coffee. They shot their Ram um, they stood up, gave each other a high five, went to glass it because it had fallen, went to glass it. A bear was already on it. In less than 30 seconds, a bear was on that ram. And it's, and Steve, you've been up here in the Chugach behind the house. You know, I, I always tell people, you know, if I'm going to hunt a dull sheep in the Chugach, and this is a joke, um, I'm not going to camo up. I'm just going to wear a Hawaiian shirt with a, with a, with a, with a ball cap and a Nikon and walk up the, uh, walk up the slope looking down because I'm going to pretend I'm a, a tourist taking pictures of flowers. And a ram is going to sit there and let me do it because that's what he sees all summer long, you know, our tourists, you know. Well, it, it, I know jokingly, but, but in that, in this back, in the Chugach, these bear are not stupid. These bear are 20 years old. And these bear know what time of year it is because the salmon aren't running anymore. And they know after the salmon are done running, guys like you and me are gonna go out there and they know that we're not the hikers in July. They know we're the guys carrying these thunder sticks, these rifles and bows. Why? Because they hear the report 
They know what's going to happen next. That ram's going to fall. I'm going to get there. I'm going to, I'm going to clean it, gut it, leave a gut pile. He's hungry. The salmon are done. He's getting ready for winter. So he just follows us around waiting for us. It's just like a dog and you've got, you know, your, your treat for it, you know, in the morning at a certain time, they'll follow you. These predators will follow you no matter where you're at because it's that time of year. Um, I, look at look at Anwar, look at the Brooks Range up there. What, what do those animals hear for 10 months a year? Nothing, deathly quiet, except for two days prior to August 10th, they hear the super cub, you know, they, you know, and they're flying over the top, dropping hunters off. At least these wolves and, and, and wolverines and bears, they're not dumb. They're going to follow you. They're going to get downwind on you and they're going to wait for you to shoot. And they're going to follow you till you get the gut pile and you start cleaning it. And, and when you leave, they're going to move in. I tell guys, like if, especially if you're solo hunting, I, I just tell them, I said, set your watch. The minute you put your knife into that animal, set the watch. And, and, and every, you know, the alarm will go off, say every 15, 20 minutes, look down range or look down wind. You'll see predators. You know, before you even open it up, I set up a shooting lane downwind. You know, I'll, I'll make sure I can see with a prevailing wind. I'll make sure I can look down there because that's what they follow in. They'll, they'll, they want, they'll, they're smelling you and the animal and they'll wait for you. Um, they'll wait for you to leave. And that's why you don't go back if you forget something, leave it because that's how guys get killed. They'll go back to a kill site and now all bets are off. You, you gave it to the, you gave it to the grizzly or the brown and you can't get it back. So, yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it, it's, yeah, they're, they're, the, the, the predators are not, they're not, they're not dumb. And, and, and so you got to be really attuned to what's happening around you. Um, here in, in, oh gosh, uh, March, uh, we're going to go, uh, goat hunting on Kodiak. And, um, I mean, just think of it, you know, Kodiak. Is, 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 is an island of very mountainous terrain and it's a very closed ecosystem of uh, brown bear and black-tailed deer. Um, so it's, it's, it's a management study of, of predator and prey and undulant, um, similar to that of like Isle Royal up in Lake Superior, wolf and moose. This is, this is brown bear and, and goat and, 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 and black-tailed deer. These bear out there, you know, the mature browns don't sleep. They're in a very maritime climate um, and they're up year round and there's no food throughout the winter. So a spring goat hunt, if you think about it, the weather is going to push all the animals, just like you have right now, the dull sheep are right down on the highway. The weather's going to push these goats down to the water and the bear aren't stupid. I mean, that's, that's an 1800 pound lethal animal. And I, and I tell people, I says, think of your Labrador. Okay. That Labrador has got a gene that is just drives it to retrieve and swim. And it loves to do it. You know, your, your German short hair pointer is just a, an animal designed to run scent and point. I mean, that's just what they do. It's in their blood and they just, they, they don't know how to control it. Well, that brown bear kills. It kills and eats. That's all it does. You know, when it's really hungry, it'll fight and kill and eat 
other bears that kill and eat. I mean, and, and, and that's an 18, that's almost a ton of muscle and lethality um, that you got to honor. I mean, you, you, you know, you don't mess around. I, you know, you see some of this stuff and you just roll your eyes going, are you serious? You're really going to go do that? You know, with a bow? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. And, and so anyway, this spring hunt, we're going to be right around the undulant, the goat and the bear all in one little area on the coast. Um, so yeah, you gotta, you gotta have your wits about you. You gotta be, you gotta understand where you fit in all this. Um, you're not king. Um, and you got to really respect, um, the guy out there who's trying to eat too, you know? Um, and he knows you, he's going to, I mean, we're going to get dropped off with a boat and believe me, it's going to be like the super cub in the, in the Brooks range. That boat is going to be moving along the water and that bear knows what that boat's going to do, which is drop me off. And my buddy, I, I'm going to do at spring goat. I, I, it's too dangerous. I, I go with two guys, uh, buddy, my Mike, um, And, uh, yeah, he knows, he knows what we're there to do. He's waiting for us to kill something, butcher it and walk away. And it's going to eat. Um, so he's going to follow us around or they are whatever it is out there. Yeah. That's good insight for sure. Um, total shift in gears, Dave, I, there's so much I want to ask you and talk about one thing I want to make sure we hit. Um, and you can elaborate on this, Steve, cause it's something we were talking about offline, but you know, you have obviously vast hunting experience, but also mountaineering. So operating, um, you know, in winter conditions and in the mountains and balancing, uh, temperature and activity, particularly in cold weather. And so I just want to learn more from you about kind of that management of warmth and moisture in particular, doing something high exertion in colder, um, conditions and, you know, whether that's managing it obviously during, um, the activity, but also following that activity as you obviously stop and then cool down and you're sweaty, but on all of that, you know, and uh, obviously a lot of this is related to clothing systems. Um, I just want to learn from you on it. Yeah. I, the, the number one rule, start out cold because you're going to, you're, you're going to warm up. Mm-hmm. Too many people start out warm. You know, they leave their tent on a mountaineering expedition or they leave their the tent on a hunt and they're all dressed up and ready to go. And then they start to sweat and they start to take it off. Well, one, <laughs> you just ruined, you just got moisture in the stuff that's supposed to keep you warm, which is not really what you want to do. What I do and, and, and the natural fibers for obvious reasons, and everybody's known this for quite some time is, is the best way to go. Um, I, I use wool and a mountaineering expedition. Uh, there's a things, um, that you do for sanitary reasons and for, uh, first aid reasons, um, um, in prepping, uh, we won't get into, but, um, I have a layer of skin. I have a very thin layer of wool, um, that I use, and it's basically an extra layer of like dead skin, you know, um, and, uh, on a mountaineering expedition, I never take it off because you're not showering anyway. Um, but it, it wicks the moisture away from me and it protects, um, my, my skin essentially. And, um, and then I, and then I have a shell, um, 
and my shells are, uh, I completely ventilate them. My, my shells for my legs and for my, my jackets, if I'm wearing a shell for wind protection or whatever, they're completely ventilated. So when I, when I go for that, that climb or that, that physical exertion, I start out cold, very well ventilated and starting out cold. And when the physical exertion stops, I have something, and it's, I, it's this whole science on how to pack a pack, but when, the, when, when I stop, my, my thermal stuff that I need, say I stop every 45 minutes and, and rest for 15 to hydrate and to eat something. Um, top of the pack is my thermal. And if I need it, a shell, you know, for, for protection, putting it basically warmth and then a tent on top of me to stand there and do my business, uh, stay warm. And then when it's time to kick off again, the shell comes off, th the thermal insulation comes off. And then I press. Um, yeah, the biggest mistake is people, the first 15 minutes are pulling their crap off. And now it's not dry and it's just not, it's not worth it. Um, yeah, Gore-Tex, there's breathable clothing, but it, not when you're talking the, what we're doing. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're really, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a heater, I'm a sweater. So I got to really watch my moisture management. I, I sweat a lot. Um, so yeah, I'm very well ventilated, um, light gloves, you know, and, and then, and then begin. I think that's the biggest mistake people make is they, they start out warm and that's even, even on a, a mountaineering, unless you're, you know, above 6,000 meters, you know, 20,000 feet or whatever. And obviously <laughs> you, you, you got to stay warm, um, and you're not moving that fast because, there's just not a lot, lot of air up there. So the limiting factor is your lungs and, and brain, but um, yeah, no, if yeah, on a hunt. Um, yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to have that really, really thin base layer um, yes. that can has the potential to dry out fairly quick. It does. And you're, you're right. And, and I, I don't take it off. I mean, literally it, it's all management, just to give you an idea of management on, on moisture in the extreme cold. For my, uh, what I wear are a, like a wool socks, okay? And then I put a vapor barrier sock on the outside of it, just say a plastic bag. And then I have my boot, okay? And when I'm, when I'm hiking and it's like 20 below, whatever, um, uh, I, I start to sweat and my, my foot starts to sweat. And now it's like super cold and my foot is wet, you know? And when I get done that day, I'm, I'm, I'm warm still, but when I get done, what I'll do is I'll take that vapor barrier off. I'll turn it inside out and I'll hang it on the top of the tent. And then I'll take my socks and I'll put them on top of me and I'll go to sleep. And when I wake up, my socks have dried because of my, my, my heat in my, in my, uh, in my, in my sleeping bag. And my vapor barrier sock, which is nothing more than plastic, has frozen. And I grab that vapor barrier frozen and I shake it and I knock off all the ice and now it's dry. And then I put my dry sock on, my vapor barrier on, and my boot has always been dry because I had a vapor barrier. I had that plastic. So the boot, the, my, my, my insulation for my boot hasn't been contaminated, hasn't, hasn't, been, hasn't been affected by moisture at all. Um, and, and so you can do the kind of the same thing. Um, you know, some guys talk about vapor barrier socks, 
for insulation, um, you know, in, in like 35 degree weather. You don't want to compromise the insulation of your boot if you're using the insulation of your boot, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because once that's been compromised, oh, we got problems, you know, just, and that's why the boot I use, and I don't want to, I'm not a marketing guy here and I don't want to sell a product, but I use plastic boots with, uh, um, with um, intuition liners. And that's, this is a whole another hour's worth of discussion on boots, mountaineering boots. But um, yeah, so the intuition liner is a closed cell. Um, and that way, if it does get wet, the insulation hasn't been compromised. But yeah, that, that thin layer on the skin, it just doesn't come off. I just, and it's, it's wool. Um, it protects me from sun. It protects me from uh, other things, uh, light abrasions, stuff like that. And, and um, yeah. It, what conditions for you would you be wearing more than that light wool layer during physical activity? Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, it, it segues into like where you're hunting. I, I, you know, again, we're so far North in latitude, uh, during the hunting season, the sun doesn't go down. Um, uh, and it's, 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 you know, so where are you? Are you going to be up hunting up around the glaciers? Um, I wear a baklava on the glaciers cause I literally sunburn the upper portion of the, <laughs> the roof of my mouth because I was crossing glacier with a lot of snow and a lot of sun and had my mouth open because I was breathing hard uh, one day. And it tasted, it felt like I drank hot chocolate and burned my mouth. Um, so yeah, you, you, you cover that stuff up and it can be warm outside, but you're using for sun protection. Um, the minute the sun goes behind clouds, uh, you know, 50, 60 degrees and you're not moving anymore. Yeah. Another medium sized wool, um, uh, layer, um, but it'd have to get fairly cold and, um, and dark. Uh, but I would put the medium sized layer on if it's, if it's raining and then put a shell on, um, and, and, and use the shell for the moisture protection and a bit of insulation. Um, I, you're moving so much um, that if, if this type of hunting, we're not in a tree stand, okay? We're just, or in a duck blind, we're moving a lot. Um, and the times that you are stationary, like for a shot or studying an animal, unless you're studying it for a long time, um, uh, I'm not, I'm not overly dressed. And if I need it, like I said, you know, a whole hour on talking about how to pack a pack, um, that stuff's available to me right on the top. So if I've got to go, if I'm looking at a Ram and I'm going, Oh my God, I, and I don't, I, I don't advocate this, but if I've got to count rings, you know, I'm going to sit there and have to stare at it, you know, for hours on end, which I've done before six, seven hours trying to get eight rings out of it. Um, yeah, you want to stay warm, you quit moving, but you're always moving on a mountain hunt. Uh, there's, yeah, they're not very, um, yeah, I'm not, uh, and, and if you're not, then, you know, your, your layering is available to you. Yeah. You don't want to come. It's just like falling in the water, or falling through ice. You don't want to get wet and I am a sweater. So therefore I do not expose my gear to moisture, whether it's rain or me. Uh, unless I need it, if that makes sense. Yeah. For insulation, um, 
do you use down synthetic? Does it depend on the conditions and the hunt and your activity level? Um, I mean, Absolutely. when I say that, I mean specifically on clothing, not like a sleeping bag, but part of this layering system. One of the unique things, great question. One of the unique things about Alaska is we get everything. We talked about where I'm at right now. We're as far north as you can get on, in a rainforest. You know, I take off out of Anchorage Airport in the wintertime and it's warmer here than it is in Minneapolis or St. Louis or, or Memphis. Um, so if I'm going to go hunt Prince William sound for black bear, I am not going to take Gore-Tex. I'm going to take a rubber suit, just like you see the fisherman, you know, lobster, whatever show, cause it rains. I mean, it's just going to rain, you know, and, and Gore-Tex is, has a failure rate to it. You know, um, I tell guys before every, every hunt, every sheep hunt, Every hunt that I go out on, I do, I do the, uh, I do the 30 minute shower. I put my rain gear on and I go stand in the shower for 30 minutes with a white t-shirt on something cotton. And if after 30 minutes, I take it off. If that cotton is just slightly moist, unfortunately, it usually happens in olders because you've had a backpack on it. It's, it's time to put that rain gear away for the, it's done for hunting. Uh, the, the tax has been compromised. Um, so yeah, I'll test it before I go out on a hunt to make sure it's the integrity is good on the gear. But yeah, you just have to, again, work from your target area back, get your intelligence. What, what type of terrain, what type of weather is it? Because like I said, and, and Steve will attest to it. I mean, you can, have, you can be hunting in the Chugach where literally a rainforest in my, or you can be up in the Brooks Range, which is, you know, the desert, you know, mountain desert. So for insulation, if you're in the wetter climate, you would go synthetic versus more potential for i'm a dryer. guy yeah but like uh for oh for the for the down uh, yeah. yeah no oh god no i i know i wouldn't but i've got a hybrid system um the the and it goes again it goes with how to pack a pack and how to operate in the mountains um if i find and i know the best insulating qualities is 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 natural you know wool and down Okay, so if I'm going to take a down sleeping bag, then I've got to do extra care and making sure it doesn't get compromised from moisture. So when I say I'm on the side of a mountain, I'm in defilade to a weather storm because it's on the other side of the mountain. And at the last minute, it breaks over the top of me and I've got 40 knot winds and hail. And I'm like, crap, you know, I got to set up a shelter. Well, again, getting back into how to pack a pack, I'm, I'm putting all of my, I'm, I'm getting my gear, I pull out the tent first, or there's, there's other things that I do first, but you get the tent out and then you get your stuff in the thing and then you start breaking stuff out, if that makes sense. So if you, if you have a synthetic bag, you don't have to worry as much or take as much care, but it may not be um, as protective as you would use um, in another scenario. Like I would not take synthetic up on Denali. Um, it's a dry, cold climate. So yeah, down works, but I wouldn't take down in Prince William Sound, okay? Because it's just too wet. So, but you're always gonna be in an area where there's kind of everything, you know? So if you're gonna stick with the down, you have to be more careful, um, if that makes sense. There's not right. one stop shop. 
again, it's, 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 yeah, that's, that's the exact point is you, you get these blind yes. questions on, is this better than this? And the answer is always, well, it yeah. depends, you know, like people need yeah. to understand context is you look at somebody's gear list or you say somebody you uses this, that doesn't mean you should, um, right. you know, it's, it's all context. Work from the target area back. Where's the target? Where's my weapon engagement zone? What kind of gear do I need? Yeah. You know? Obviously, the marksmanship. I got to practice this. Well, what what do you need? Where where are you? Well, I'm in Prince William Sound. Well, I'm not taking Gore-Tex, dude. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm taking rubber because you're going to be rained on. You're going to get four inches of rain. You know, the two weeks you're there. Do you do anything different on a winter hunt versus you know a spring or fall hunt in terms of nutrition and hydration? Oh God, great question. Number one thing, hydration. People don't understand the value of water. They think they do, but they don't. Water lubricates. It's, it's, it's oil and, and radiator fluid. It, 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 it lubricates and it keeps you warm, okay, in the cold weather. You're, if, if you are dehydrated, uh, you, you're going you're gonna to freeze, Okay. I mean, you're going to, you're going to become more, more hypothermic and that, you can be hypothermic and, and, you know, just get wet, you know, and, and 40, 40 degrees uh, at night or whatever, you know, in a, in a survival situation, you have to be hydrated. You constantly, I am, like I said, 45 minutes, I'm stopping and I'm drinking water. I'm constantly being hydrated. Um, yeah, you, you, and it goes along and it's a great concept. It goes along with your workouts and, 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 and working your hydration, just to give you an understanding of, of how you should hydrate. And I always tell people when you, when you begin your workouts, uh, weigh yourself, just, just get on a scale before you put your gear on. And if you say weigh 173.5, when you finish your workout, if you're 173.3, drink 2.2 ounces of water. You didn't hydrate enough, okay? And, and, and understand how much you need to hydrate during your workout. You know, you look at a hockey player sitting on the bench. What are they doing? They're constantly squirting water. You know, they're constantly drinking because they're in a dry, cold climate. Are they sweating? Uh, does a swimmer know he's sweating? No, he doesn't know, but, but he's hydrating. And you can do that just by measuring beginning and the end of your workout. And that transitions into the mountains. Okay. You, you, if you understand how much you need to consume water by in the beginning, understanding it by just weighing yourself, then you'll understand how much you need to be hydrating in the mountains when you don't have a scale. You constantly, and I I do mine on intervals. I go every 45 minutes, I stop, I eat a little bit, I graze a little bit on a pro bar or something and I'm, and I'm hydrating, um, which segues into, into the food. Uh, which again goes back into our workouts. If, and I believe we talked about it on our previous podcast. If you're able to get your body into consuming fat for energy, your, your food consumption isn't as important um, as to how many calories. If you, again, it goes into, um, you know, hitting the wall on a marathon back in the eighties, you know, we carbo loaded and then we ran and then 22 miles, we failed, you know, we hit the wall. Well, that's because the body was using the nutrition you, you put into it for its energy. 
Um, now, what do they do? They're running a hundred miles, eating a goo pack. Now, wait a minute. The, <laughs> the, physiologically, we haven't changed, but how are they doing a hundred miles? Well, they've, they've transformed their body into consuming fat, which is burns three times hotter than a carbohydrate molecule. It gives you three times more energy. And as a mountain hunter, as a mountain uh, climber, that's what you want to be able to do. Um, what was the, what was the name of that show where the guy free, uh, uh not Don wall. It was, uh, the climber. Uh, yeah. He, he, free solo? he did El cap. Yeah. El free solo. Yeah. El cap. Sorry about that. Um, four hours on that rock face. Okay. Did you see him stop and put his hands on his knees and bend over and take a break? No, I'm, I'm he was fine. constantly on that wall. Okay, so his fingers in those cracks and crags and contorting his body for four straight hours. That body was consuming energy like there was no tomorrow. I mean, think about it. You know, you just sit in your room and you, you take your fingertips and hold on to the, the, the above your door and, and just try to stay there or just hang on a pull-up bar, you know, uh, or just stay on a pull-up bar with your feet and arms for four hours. You're burning energy. Did he carry any food? Did he carbo load? No, he had transformed his body and his training into burning fat for energy. And he had the energy. You know, I, I, and I, and I, I'd learned this a long time ago in, in, in survival training back when I was going through flight school in the, in the Navy. I remember one of the uh, uh, senior master chiefs in survival training said, you know, if you eject out of your airplane in the Pacific and we're blue water ops and we don't find you, you know, you'll be able to survive for three days or three days, three weeks. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, as long as you got water, you'll be. And it, it's true because your body, just like the bear hibernating, you know, all of a sudden goes, well, we're out of food. Well, let's go to the fat and your body. What does it do with it? When you eat it, it stores it because the body knows that that's the most important resource for energy for survival. And if you don't use what you've consumed, like carbohydrates and stuff like that, what does it do? It turns it into fat and stores it. You know, the body's not dumb. So if we can train our body to use that energy, which is three times better than anything, um, we don't have to carry as much food, which is a long answer to your question. You know, I can carry, you know, two thirds less food because I don't need it for my energy because of my training. I've transformed my body energy to consume fat instead of carbo loading. Uh, but water is key. You can't do anything, no matter what you put in your stomach. If you don't have water hydration, you know, again, from your target area back, where's my water source? That's the survival part that I look at. You know, everybody focuses on the lethal, you know? Oh yeah. Okay, great. Where's the water? Oh, it's down there. You mean I got to go up and down, you know, 2000 feet every day for water. Yep. Okay. My tactics have changed. You know, you know, I've I made my spike may be down 2000 feet. You know, I may have to figure out how to glass this animal because <laughs> I'm an animal too. I gotta, I gotta be around my water source, you know? Um, yeah. So we don't pay enough attention to that. We don't pay enough, enough attention to in our training, um, about how to transform our body. Um, and we work on our muscle and it gets into, and, and I'll, I'll just, I know I'm probably talking way too long, but I could talk on this forever. 
but it gets into the, uh, the mental toughness. And we talked a little bit about that last time. Um, you know, the body is, is that bicep will, is stupid. I mean, it'll, it'll operate to failure. You know, it doesn't have a brain. Okay. What's the governor for that bicep? Well, it's our brain. Our brain, the one, our brain is the one that says, you know, go, 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 go until failure. Well, our brain is also a governor that says, I don't want to go. That's too heavy. You know, and all too often when we hit the mountain, our governors are set at 40%, you know, and I want my governor to be set at 80. You know, I don't want to fail. I don't want to tear anything, but I want to be able to maximize my performance on the, on the mountain. So how do I train my brain, you know, to, to endure stuff like that? Well, you guys are going to do it here shortly on your, hunt, on your, on your, uh, your death march. Um, that's mental training. That's the mental toughness. So I always tell the guy, I says, okay, you got a choice tomorrow it's, or in an afternoon, this afternoon, it's going to be 20 knot winds, rain, 35 degrees, and you got a thousand feet to do on the mountain here, or you can do 4,000 foot on your Stairmaster watching television for an hour. Now everybody goes, well, shoot, I'm going to do the 4,000 because I'm going to achieve my 4,000 feet on the Stairmaster if I just a thousand out, outside. And that's like, no, dude. Now, uh, you're going to get more out of this by going outside, getting wet, taking your glove off, putting your glove back on, managing, going, you know, on that mountain now with crampons because it's slick and doing all that stuff. And vice just the 4,000 feet that you can log in your logbook for training. You know, it looks good on paper. Yeah, I achieved, you know, 1,400 feet or 14,000 feet this summer, or this, this week because I got a 4,000 footer in on the Stairmaster. Yeah, but dude, your governor's set at 40%. You know, I want you outside. You know, that's my hunting partner. I want to go outside. I know it sucks. You guys know it's going to suck with snowshoes. I call them slow shoes, you know, with a pack and the snow and, you know, but that's great training. You know, that segues into the gear you're going to use. Like right now, I'm, I'm working on my marksmanship for my Kodiak hunt. I know my shots are going to be 3, 300 and less. So I'm using my maximum point blank range shooting. And I'm trying to working my visual dope better than I don't in case my rangefinder fails. You know, I've got, I, anyway, I won't get into the marksmanship side. But when I go to set my targets, you know, most people aren't going to go out there to 300 yards. They're all going to sit at 100 yards. Why? Because the snow's been plowed to the hundred yard line target area. I take my snowshoes out there. I'll get to the hundred. I'll put my snowshoes on and I'll walk out to the 300 on my snowshoes and my poles. And I'll drop my target. I'll come back and I'll take the snowshoes off. And all of that little stuff that I'm doing, you know, with my gloves on, putting my snowshoes on, walking out there, getting stable and my shoes, getting used to them again. I'm going to have to do that when I'm out there on Kodiak. And now I'm used to it. You know, I'm not fumbling around when my, when my, my snowshoes have been out there for two, three hours while I was shooting. And now I got to go back to put them on. And oh, by the way, I post hold through the snow into some water, submerged water. And I pull my foot out. Now they're all iced and now I got to put them on. And well, I'm already doing that. I'm ready. I'm going to be more efficient in the mountains when I get out there. So I'm going to be more spending more time glassing, and being more lethal because I, my gear, I'm, I'm, I'm good with my gear and yeah, it's, I'm being miserable too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So all these little things, 
um, especially with your gear. Um, I, 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 the classic, I can, I can take a guy and before we go on a hunt is we'll just get our gear on and we'll say, yeah, let's just go on out and do a gear check on the side of the mountain. And I can watch him walk 20 yards with his stuff on. And I'll tell you if he's comfortable with his stuff, just by the way he uses his poles. It, it's, it's, a, it's a classic. You know, most guys just don't use their poles correctly. And what that does that most people don't think through is that once you get out there and you're using this strange object in your hand and you're not comfortable with it, you're burning a lot of energy, nervous energy, because you're just not comfortable and it's getting in the way and you're fighting it. Mm-hmm. You're not and efficient. now you're getting tired. Yeah, you're totally inefficient. You know, he's got his baskets on the poles and he's going through, you know, tundra and it's just, you just go, okay. You know, obviously he didn't spend enough time in his snowshoes or enough time with his poles. And then we have just a real quick little class on how to use the poles, you know, and, and so they are efficient for you and you can relax because that's what you want to be able to do is climb, relax, just like, just like, you know, you saw in that movie, he's, he's, he's straining on that rock, but he's relaxed also. He's, he's reserving as much energy as he possibly can. He's trying to rest as best he can. And that's the whole idea behind these poles and this gear is, is to help you, not, to, not, not you fighting it, just like those snowshoes. You know, you're going to be fighting them. You know, <laughs> yeah. I was fighting them, you know, when we decided to go on this goat hunt and I went to the range and I was putting them on again. And, you know, I was just like, oh, crap, I hate these things. And I had a <laughs> choice. I was really set, seriously thinking about bringing my backcountry skis because it was easier. I said, well, I'm not going to be in my backcountry skis on this, on this hunt. I'm going to have my, my snowshoes with me. So I put the snowshoes on. Good stuff in there. It's uh, even that takeaway on are you relaxed? Because when a lot of times when guys are under tension, they don't, not that they don't realize it. Obviously, you feel it, but you're not thinking about it with any sort of detachment. Like you're in the tension, you're in the moment. Instead of kind of assessing that and going, okay, I feel tension here. I feel nervousness here. What have you? Like, what can I do to correct this? You're just, a lot of times guys get under uh, tension or under stress and they just want to eliminate it. They just want to get it over with, not actually work through it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does. And, you know, and, and, and when, it, when, it, and you, when you put it all together, it's, when it's time to make the shot, you don't want any of that. You know, you, you want to focus on your marksmanship and you, and, you, and you want to focus on, you know, you want your heart rate down, you know, um, or you're going to be in a really lousy position and it's going to hurt for the shot because you're laying on this rock. You know, you, you know, you, yeah, you just, it's, it's like bench shooting and then going out and doing it for the real thing. You just kind of go, holy crap, I didn't practice like this before. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, that's why, you know, Steve, when you guys were talking about that, um, when you were up here, I was just smiling inside. I'm thinking, thank God we got guys out there that are actually paying attention to some stuff like this. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I mean, just everybody gets on YouTube and watches the 20 minute video of the 10 of the day sheep hunt. And they think that's what it is. And it's not, it's, it's totally not. And it's sad because, you know, they don't get what they, what they really paid their money for. You know, you, you talk, that's why a lot of these, it's funny. You look at these, you ever see the combo hunts and you go, wow, two hunts in one. 
and and it's usually you know the doll sheep hunt with the bear hunt or the care the classic is the uh the caribou grizzly hunt you know <clears throat> uh or the or the the doll sheep hunt caribou hunt and it's always the second hunt is the one that dumbs down <clears throat> it's it's the the aspiring sheep hunt to where all of a sudden the client's three days into it going and the guy's thinking to himself, what did you understand about 10 days in the mountains? All right, we'll just go down and kill that caribou. You know, um, it, it's, it's, yeah, it, just people, if they just, if they do their due diligence and do what you guys are doing, which is what you're going to do here shortly, I guess this week, um, <clears throat> that's, that's the most important thing out of it. You know, getting efficient with your gear, becoming, you know, knowing the misery, but getting through the misery, setting that governor at 80%, vice 40, you know, the, the 40%ers are the guys who stay in the gym and, 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 you know, you got to get out and they don't have to ask the question, how to, how to layer, how to do this, how to my gear. Well, God, they've been living in their gear because they've been working out with their gear. Um, and, and that's where you learn, you know, you can listen to this podcast or watch 10,000 videos and you're not going to do it until you get out there and go, you know what, this 115 pounds is heavy and this belt strap sucks. You know, you know I'm going to go to a seamstress and have her put another, you know, five ounces of foam in my waistband, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, you don't want to be figuring that stuff out on a, all sheep hunt, like you said, with a guide and your best buddy and going, man, my equipment sucks. So good. So much good stuff in there, Dave. Yeah. Thanks for the time, man. It's, uh, it's good to chat again for sure. And there's, there's a lot of takeaways in here. So appreciate you sharing, you know, I always just love talking to guys when they're, what they're talking about, just like exactly what you just said, really what they're saying is coming from experience, not from theory, not from just study alone, but actually time in the field. Well, you know, and, and a lot of these little sayings that I, I mentioned is, <clears throat> is, and I learned from aviation is, is you breathe, you execute, and you debrief. And that's the way I hunt. I brief with myself or with a guy, you know, Mike, when we go out here in Kodiak, we execute. And at the end of the day, we debrief. I, I take a pen or a, a pencil, not pen, not a pen. I take a pencil and paper. And I write stuff down because I learn something all the time and I critique myself. I'm very, very hard on myself. And I, and, and those are the lessons learned that you just don't do again, or you go, man, I could have did that better. Or, you know, next, next time I'm going to, I'm going to sight in like this. Um, and, and, you know, you work from your target area back and you get the best intelligence is human Intel. Get, get a hold of your buddies, get, you know, find out who's done it. You know, Steve will tell you, you know, if I, you know, Steve became ultimate, uh, intimately familiar with Devil Club, <laughs> Devil's Club and Alders, you know, it'd be kind of nice to know that they were there before you got there. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, be very hard on yourself. And, and, and it's always nice to look at your notes. I keep my notes and you start reading about that 2007 hunt and you go, wow, I completely forgot about that. You know, I'm going to do this, you know. Um, but yeah, be hard on yourself, both in training and, and, and in the field. And, and I don't know, you just become a more lethal hunter. 
Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that one. Once again, if you want to check out the article that kind of expands upon some of the wisdom that I've learned from Dave, check out the link in the show description. And to receive future articles and other content, including videos from us in the future, head to exomountaingear.com forward slash newsletter to become an exo insider. Once again, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com.